This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing software designed to help freelancers and small business owners get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster. If that sounds good to you, click through to gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations to activate their 30-day free trial. That's gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations. Stephen Van Collar is the Chief Executive for Corporate and Investment Banking at Barclays Africa. He is a chartered accountant who worked for Ernst & Young in South Africa and the UK for many years before leaving the professional accounting industry to join Deutsche Bank, where he served as Head of Coverage and Corporate Advisory. Since joining Barclays in 2006, Stephen has held the positions of Deputy Chief Executive and Head of Investment Banking at ABSA Capital and was appointed to his current position in 2009. This is African Tech Conversations. Stephen Van Collar, Van Collar, how do you say it? Van Collar. Oh yeah? Is that uh, Dutch? It's actually German, but uh, been anglicized over three genera or oh, three hundred years in South Africa. I can't imagine your forebears would just, would like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were von Kohler in the eight or uh, in the 1780s when they came out here. So I'm very much an African and been here a long time. I think I'm 11th generation. I think that counts for African on some, <laughs> by some standard. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, 10 years ago, I bet if they told you that one day as the CEO of corporate and investment banking at Barclays, you'd be invited to chat on a Tech Conversations podcast. You wouldn't have thought that was likely. No, it's very interesting how over the last sort of five years, it's the whole banking model has accelerated uh, post the financial crisis in 2008 and how one has had to fundamentally change a business model. And um, obviously, the big margins and um, the friction in the banking system is driving a lot of fintech investment because where there's margins and where there's friction, that's where the entrepreneurs want to go. And uh, we're having to partner with them to deal with it. Right. Well, before we get into all that, and we will, um, I'd like you to think back to a near-death experience from your childhood. I'll give you a moment. And um, once you have it in your mind, I want you to tell us about it. Well, the, the, the most near death experience I've had was, uh, as a youngster, probably about six years old. Uh, we used to always go holidaying in the Drakensberg and, um, we were going to go down to, we had a big rain, rainstorm. So we went down to the river and we were going to go and ride tubes down the river. But, uh, when I got there, some of the bigger folk were going down without tubes and I thought this looked very cool. And so I just dived straight in. And I uh, had my tackies on because uh, everyone said you must keep your your running shoes on because if you hit rocks, it uh, helps you. And uh, I found that uh, with my running shoes on, I couldn't swim properly. And so I felt that I was going to go under. And actually, I mean, it wasn't that bad. It just felt very bad. And eventually someone fished me out as I was wafting down the river with my head barely above water. Oh, wow. Do you remember what went through your head? Um Yes, it was, it was more about why didn't I think about this before I jumped headlong into it? And that was really the main thing afterwards. And do you remember who fished you out? My mother. <laughs> okay. So she was a decent swimmer, thankfully. Yes, absolutely. 
Fantastic. So tell me a little bit about um, that the world that incident happened in. So you're six years old. You're at the drunk. Uh, you're out in the mountains. Uh, your mother's obviously present. Who else is there? What's your life like? Who's around you? So really, we used to go on holiday with lots of family and friends, and it was very much an outdoor life. Go hiking. You know, spend the day outside. And, uh, it was very relaxed and obviously with, you know, close friends around you. So lots of fun, lots of evening entertainment, lots of people you knew. So very relaxed environment and, uh, you know, very much enjoying the spoils of Africa in the, you know, outdoor environment. And so you would holiday in the, the highlands of the, of Wazulu Natal. What, what was home? Where was home? Home was in, uh, Durban in, uh, actually in Cowies Hill, just outside Durban. You, uh, do you have siblings or did you grow up a single child? No, I've got an older sister who's two years older than me, lives in New Zealand today, and I've got a younger sister who's four years younger than me who lives in Johannesburg. I see. And any near-death experiences as an adult? <laughs> no, not really, other than getting divorced, which uh, was uh, you know, just a big traumatic event that uh, I'd never programmed or factored into uh, my life, and that was pretty traumatic and felt like near death at the time well they do say that as far as trauma can be measured it is one of the worst things that can happen to a human being apart from i guess death <laughs> no absolutely i think death's probably better because when you're dead you're dead and you can't do anything about it uh it's uh the near deathness of it which is really traumatic and then also having to deal with being split from children which uh at the time feels like the end of the world and then you find a way to work around it and you know get past it and move on. And if you compare the trauma of that near-death experience as a kid versus what you went through more recently, what stands out for you? Well, the uh, the six-year-old experience was probably a two-minute experience and then it was over and then you could reflect on you know, what you needed to do differently next time. And the memory stays with you and it is a, a learning. Um, the divorce thing uh, is a much more prolonged uh, experience and uh, really forces you to do a lot more soul searching and uh, in a way um, has been very positive in terms of changing my own behavior and my own views on myself and uh, so uh, you know 10 years down the, the track has been very positive in terms of how I deal with life and how I deal with situations and how I even run the business so very traumatic but obviously um, if you really em embrace it, you get lots more out of it. It's a recurring theme, I think, uh, whether you watch YouTube clips of successful uh, entrepreneurs or um, top-tier executives like yourself, uh, the sort of sacrifices that have to, to be made in order to succeed in the C-suite, as it were. Is it accurate to say that if, if I were to aspire to the career you've had, I should expect that kind of sorrow <laughs> almost? Uh, it's it's a very interesting analogy. I've thought about it a lot because, in especially in the banking and the the finance world, there's uh, in 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 parts of it, there's definitely a high incidence of uh, you know similar events. But I think in today's world, where you've got far more flexibility, for example, today I fly a lot less than I did. 10 years ago because I don't need to you know we've got good VC facilities people are happy with you VCing uh, there's very different ways to to actually do things whereas 10 years ago it was quite difficult and the quality was bad and everything so I think also today um, the business world is far more 
um, accommodating in terms of getting a life um, work balance. And I think it's up to everyone to make sure that you don't, you, you put some boundaries down for yourself and make sure that your family and friends understand those boundaries and then you stick to them because then everyone knows what the expectation is. I think a lot of this happens because we don't communicate the expectations properly and uh, then people are left picking up the pieces. And so that's certainly one learning I've made in having remarried and, you know, had had more kids and, you know, I've dealt that with that on a far more open basis. And um, actually between my wife and I, we actually discuss what I do and I don't do. And sometimes that is career limiting, but you've got to live with that because you've got to decide what's more important at the end of the day. I've got a motto, you, you don't live to work, you work to live. Ah, I'll bet you're quite relieved that your children are growing up in a different in a different era. Do any of them aspire to what you've achieved outside of being their dad? Obviously, they're probably going, well, thanks for that, obviously. But <laughs> thanks for making me or helping. Um, but yeah, aside from that, have you noticed their desire to emulate anything you've, you've so far done? Not yet. Uh, my youngest daughter says to me um, that it can't be too difficult to be a banker because bankers just sell money and everyone wants it. So what's so difficult about that? <laughs> I like her. <laughs> so do I. It's fantastic. And so how many kids all together, just out of interest? I've got six, four of my own and uh, two extras. Well done. Well done. <laughs> well, they better have a banker for a dad. <laughs> Absolutely. I have to keep working for a while. That's awesome. So how different is being a CEO to being a dad, do you think? Um, what are board meetings, quote unquote, uh, at at your house like? Do you <laughs> Do you have them, if you have them? No, we definitely have, especially Sunday lunches tend to be the board meetings where the whole family sits down, has lunch, and then you, you know, talk about the week and what's happened. And, uh, if there's any decisions, like important decisions that need to be made, like where are we going on holiday? What kind of dog are we buying? What's the dog's name? Uh, they tend to get discussed at those board meetings. Democratically or I mean, now this is a proxy for trying to establish what kind of style leader you are. So are these democratic discussions or are these sort of, by the way, I've decided we're getting a dog and his name is Spot. Or what's it like? I wish it worked like that. But uh, as a, a parent, you, you tend to be disregarded and the kids form their own hierarchy and, you know, work out who's actually the main decision maker amongst the kids. And then the, they agree the proposal on that basis. So, uh, Yes, it, you know, sometimes you have to moderate it because they would love to, you know, go and spend a zillion rand on a holiday and, you know, go on, you know, all, all sorts of places and you have to moderate them. But at the end of the day, they tend to decide where we go and what we do. And that's, I mean, uh, it's fine because as they say, I always say happy wife, happy life. And so uh, if the kids are happy, the wife's normally happy. And so that's, you know, sort of the pecking order of decision making. Uh, th- this wouldn't be a metaphor for how you run the business here at Barclays, would it? <laughs> No, not at all. I mean, what we're trying to do here at, at Barclays, um, is banking is very old. It's a, it's a, it's a legacy business. So it's got a very big hierarchy. And what was interesting is, uh, I was running a session with my Gen Ys because they make up 70% of the business in terms of uh, numbers of people. And in one of the coffee breaks, the, the one youngster came to me and said, I've Googled you and I see you're very interested in Egyptology. And I said, absolutely. I find it fascinating, the maths behind it and the, the actual level of, you know, civilization 5,000 years ago. He said, do you know that they've got pyramids there? So I said, yes, I've actually been there. 
And he said to me, uh, do you know that it's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world? And I said, absolutely. I said, it's fantastic. I can't believe how they built them. So he says, do you know that they're 5,000 years old? So I said, yes. He says, so why do you use it as your management structure? And um, from that point on, you sort of realize that actually it doesn't work in the new world where youngsters have got so much access to information that, you know, in the old world, you used to have to build it up over years. And so we've taken what I call, I don't know if you've read the books on, on holacracy and, uh, I haven't. Okay. Well, it's really about having management at the center, not at the top. And so we've, we've been busy implementing that, trying to flatten hierarchies, flatten structures, make the most junior person as, as close to the most senior person rather than having sort of nine or 10 layers. And uh, also allowing people to do task-based work as opposed to giving them a job description and almost straightjacketing them. There's a great story about that. I was at uh, ESCOM one year, and I don't know if you've been to the ESCOM buildings in Megawatt Park, but they're huge. And uh, many years ago, they used to operate in both of them. Now SARS has one and ESCOM has the other one. And I remember speaking to the then CEO, uh, Telonic. Uh, Kibashi saying to me, Oh, this is a big office. How many people work here? And he said to me, 30%. And I've never, never forgotten that. And that's what the old style job description type world does to people is that you can have very clever people, but if you straightjacket them with a job description, you only get, you know, 30 or 40% of their, of their intellect out. And so we're really trying to allow people to think more and, uh, encourage them to, you know, go outside the box and actually, you know, push the boundaries a bit more rather than just be boxed into uh, a straitjacket of a job description. So we're going to come back to some tougher questions around legacy issues uh, of, of being at the head of an organization like this one. You're a chartered accountant, uh, I believe, a chartered management accountant as well at the same time. Well done, overachiever. Uh, why is the C-suite, do you think, in, in so many uh, African blue chip firms dominated by accountant types like you? I think it is legacy. I mean, when I started working uh, in my last job at uh, Deutsche Bank, uh, we were 70% chartered accountants and about 20% engineers and, you know, 10% lawyers. Whereas today, if you have a look at the, the people we hire, it's probably 10% accountants. So I think it'll work itself out the system. But when I went to university, you know, you're either a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, you know, et cetera. There wasn't this, uh, broad band of, opportunities or, or, or different courses you could do. There was actually a real limit on what you could do. Sorry, you make it almost sound like a bad thing. Almost, you, you're almost apologizing for it. Is, is it, has that been a, has that been bad for South African business, African business at large? Well, I think it has stifled some things in, uh, uh, from the past, but I think it's fundamentally changed. And that's almost, I'm saying there's a huge opportunity coming through here. When I have a look at the people coming up through the organization, only a percentage, a small percentage of them are actually chartered accountants. And I firmly believe in diversity in an organization gives you a competitive advantage. And that's not just on what you've uh, studied, but it's also on your background, your culture, your gender, because you, you know, everyone thinks differently. And if you end up being 70% chartered accountants, I mean, I know what a white male South African chartered accountant thinks like. I don't need another one to tell me how I must think because I, you know, so you want as much diversity as uh, possible. And we've pursued that quite hard, especially in my, you know, XCO and XCO minus one where we, I try and get people who are going to challenge me rather than agree with me because that's the way you get a better outcome. So I think it's very positive for 
uh, South Africa and, you know, Africa going forward, that you're able to get this much broader education than we used to get. And in temperament as a leader, which stereotypes uh, around accountants fit you? Good and bad. I mean, I have a little list here. I have <laughs> strict. I have prudent. I have uh, conservative, um, orderly, extremely accountable, unimaginative. Um, I think a lot of those I've actually got over myself. You know, if I go back to, uh, 10 years, the thought of me doing a podcast or, you know, standing up in front of a thousand people and giving a presentation was not going to happen. Whereas today it's exactly the opposite. Um, I used to not enjoy having to do staff appraisals and interaction and everything. Today I find that one of the most rewarding things is only because I've got over myself and worked through it. And I think that's a fundamental thing of leadership is you've got to do things to challenge your weaknesses and um, be honest about them. Um, I've done silly things like I actually had uh, one of the lead actors and one of the um, local African soapies come and take me through uh, a public speaking sort of uh, dragon's den, you know, where she really made me feel very uncomfortable. But the outcome was very positive. And sometimes you have to do these uncomfortable things. I mean, I try and tell my staff that uh, you need to, it isn't about being comfortable being uncomfortable. You must be uncomfortable when you're feeling comfortable because then you know you, you're not living on the edge and actually moving forward. I never quite heard it like that. <laughs> well, glad I taught you something. Well then, uh, you know, given the shifting landscape uh, in finance, at large, but fintech specifically, how much are issues around technology and innovation dominating conversations you're having in this very room? And of course, our listeners can't see it, but um, the video screens you mentioned, which probably keep you in, in Johannesburg a lot more <laughs> often than you would have been perhaps 15 years ago. Um, but yeah, like how, how often does this room buzz with talk of innovation and technology and how we can surf the wave of fintech disruption? You make it sound very glamorous, and actually, it's uh, more business as usual. But but actually, it's, it's it's very important. Of our five key agenda items in our exco, three of them relate to technology in some way, data being one of them, and and how we use it. But really, what we need to do is we need to make the client experience so much more user friendly than it is. I still like in banking to a dentist appointment and until we make it a iPhone purchase where people queue outside our doors every day because they want to be there, then uh, we haven't really won the game. And the third thing is really taking out cost out the business so that you can get a lower cost to serve. And ultimately, if you think about exponential organizations, you want the marginal customer the cost of acquisition or service to tend to zero because that's the ultimate barrier to entry. So most of my executives and some further down, I've already sent them to Singularity University to get involved in their exponential organizations, RPP, just to get the, their way of thinking different. And uh, we do a lot of work around that. And I, I know Barclays Africa has some innovation-driven initiatives to try and ensure that new ideas are not only supported but exploited. Uh, I know that Innovation Hubs is one of those you know initiatives Except skeptics reckon this model of trying to manufacture innovation, you know, hasn't really shown much promise uh, and isn't likely to prevent a giant like, like Barclays, you know, from succumbing to disruption. So what do you say to skeptics who say that? So there's two things here is one is the main reason why we do these accelerators is that in a big organization like ourselves, 
is we're just not agile enough to get really on the leading edge of uh, innovation. So spending a, a bit of money and paying your homework to um, understand what these entrepreneurs are doing, these, um, these innovators are doing, actually helps you accelerate your understanding in the business. So even if nothing comes out of it, the best thing that for us that comes out of it, we've paid our school fees, and instead of going to some course in the US or something, you actually have it on your doorstep and you, you're getting latest thinking. That's the first thing. The second thing also that I've found is where you've got business problems that you're trying to solve internally, if you put those out into the innovation space, it's amazing what people come up with. And so we've had a number of interventions that uh, have helped us. And, you know, it's like any you think of any venture capitalist, they say if they get one out of 10 that works, they're doing well. And so a lot of the skeptics say, oh, there's big failure rate, but there is because you're at the leading edge. So I'm also in the space. If I get one out of 10 that works and become and gives us something and we partner with them then we've we've succeeded and that's a good success rate so it's at the top end and so that's really what we're doing is really throwing business problems that we're struggling to solve in a big sort of uh, unagile organization we try and throw it into um, those type hopes and if you think about the cost of them actually very low compared to us trying to solve it ourselves getting halfway down and then you have to, you know, throw it out. So um, I'm very positive about them, and that's why we've got involved. We've got a 200 million rand seeker fund that actually invests in some of them, and we've we've made some investments already. And as you know, we're into our second round of uh, accelerator program at the moment. There's some very interesting things coming out, some things that we hadn't even thought of ourselves. So uh, that's the beauty of it. Um, so I'm I'm very pro, you know, doing this in this world that's changing so fast. Several fintech startup founders I've spoken to, uh, some of the most successful ones uh, have have told me that some of the hardest customers to try and sell on new ideas, innovative ideas within fintech are the banks. And uh, my question is, is there an unofficial or official uh, playbook at Barclays, you know, in terms of identifying uh, innovation outside the scope of, say, what you've just described and you know, making moves to buy it in. Yeah, so that's what the the Seeker Fund does. We've already acquired a company called Rainfin, um, and uh, Rainfin's the only African peer-to-peer lending play, and we aggressively using it uh, for our SME lending because to do it in-house is very expensive and uh, takes a long time. You know, it can take up to two or three weeks to get an SME loan through. How does a deal like that happen? Um, interestingly, uh, what we did uh, two and a half years ago, we did something, I don't know if you've read the John Nagel book around uh, um, a strategy, he calls it a zoom in, zoom out, a zoom out, zoom in uh, policy. He's uh, in Deloitte, so he calls himself the center for the edge, which I think is quite uh, interesting. But basically, you go and have a look at what do you think your landscape's going to be in 10 years' time. That's the zoom out. And so we did, what does banking look like? What does Africa look like in 10 years' time? And then we zoomed into our strategy today to see if we could recognize if if our strategy today would get us to where we think banking is going to be, and the answer was no. And so we had to fundamentally change things. So we came up with a few, um, ar- a few ideas that we thought were going to be interesting paths to walk down to learn about this the changing evolution and one of them was peer-to-peer lending and we went out and had a look at what was in the market we chose the best one we spoke to the owner 
And uh, what was interesting is he shared exactly the same view as us, is that he's got agility, which we don't have, but we've got scale, which he doesn't have. And so actually it's a perfect match. And so um, that's what we've, you know, um, built on. So you come up with these ideas that you think will fundamentally change your, your business and uh, you, you then go and partner with them. In the U.S., I think it's slightly different because entrepreneurs can get access to the scale. In uh, places like Africa, it's very difficult because the scale is owned by a few people. Even in South Africa, there's only four main banks. So it's really about getting a bank to trust you with a trial. Exactly right. Um, you've got to come up with a proposition that um, without you know, breaking the bank, you can do a trial together to see does it you know, fundamentally change. And what's interesting is our original idea on peer-to-peer lending is not what has been the killer app. It's a bit like uh, you know, mobile phones. Uh, you know, the killer app was SMS and now it's WhatsApp and that's the communication, not the voice and, and everything. And we found that as well. But what's, what, what's interesting around it is that um, if you don't go down these paths, you don't actually – you know, get anywhere. So you have to, you have to make a first step. And so my view is always to the, the, the place where it normally falls over is on, entrepreneurs have a much bigger view on the valuation of their, their company, even though they haven't achieved anything yet. And they undervalue the scale of a player like a Standard Bank or a Barclays or something like that. And so that's where a lot of the discussions fall apart. And when you get access to scale, your ability to accelerate is phenomenal. And uh, so that's where the accountant's been. Ah, oh, <laughs> nice back in the room, people. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's really what one has to deal with. And uh, that's always the difficult part. And then on the flip side of it, when you go back into an uh, investment committee of an old, you know, legacy bank, they want to do cash flows and DCFs and everything. And, you know, the new world is not about cash flows and DCFs. It's about owning scale. And so, you know, getting that idea across is sometimes quite difficult. And so you've got this, you know, sort of conflict. But, you know, we're all learning and we're getting there. And uh, my personal view is in places like Africa, I don't think banks get disrupted totally because we own scale. Um, but there are other, other scale players like, um, cell phone companies, et cetera. So if you're a bank that's going to, you know, sit on your hands and do nothing, you will get disrupted. But I do think there's an absolute, um, um, symbiotic relationship that can exist between ag- agility and scale. So entrepreneur and legacy, if they're prepared to both compromise on the way forward. We're taking a quick break to remind you of FreshBooks pretty awesome offer to you, a listener of the African Tech Conversations podcast. They're offering a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to try out their service. Now, if you'd like to get organized, save time invoicing and get paid faster, click through to gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations and put their software to the test. I think it also speaks to the importance of whether you're a startup founder or a head of a legacy institution like you are, uh, the importance of that diversity you mentioned earlier to, to be able to, to strike that balance. Cause you, like you say, you get startup founders who, you know, we chase these valuations, man. And then you've got rooms full of accountants. I'm kidding. I should stop taking digs at accountants. It's incidentally the, the, the major I dropped at varsity. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm digging at you, uh, but I shouldn't. Um, but yeah, you get a room full of certain kind of thinking, I think in corporate, um, Africa that isn't 
prepared for what the world needs as far as understanding the opportunity of partnering with agility, which is right. And I want to ask you about that room of people. And I use room as an analogy for a system, a way of thinking, you know, because I believe strongly that the typical four year leadership cycle within uh, large corporates and the strong pressure to maximize shareholder value, drawing back to the analogy of pleasing your wife and kids is it's, I feel like it's probably one of the likeliest hurdles uh, to the, to sustain corporate success in the long term. What do you think about that? I agree with you. I th- just one thing I disagree is I think the biggest issue at the moment is that big corporates, there's a divergence between shareholder value and the construct of senior execs pay. I personally think that's been the failure of capitalism in a way. Because um, if you have a family business and you're the 100% owner, you do everything to make sure employees are happy, your clients are happy and everything because you want to pass it down your family. Whereas today, an exec can come in and work for four years, get paid a lot of money and leave. And uh, really what you should be doing is you should be making sure, and you know, not all companies get this wrong, so I'm just saying generally, is you need to have a far more far closer focus with senior execs on the long-term outcome as opposed to the short-term pay. And I think through the boom, that got skewed. So there was more and more cash being paid and less and less share incentive. And I think that needs to change. Uh, um, and, you know, it's interesting that uh, the banking regulation out of uh, Europe is, you know, almost taking shares away from uh, from uh, banking executives. And I think that's a fundamental problem because you no longer – then invested. Yeah, invested in the long term. And I think some of these decisions around investing in a entrepreneurial partnership, it takes 10 years for it to happen. You know, it's not a, I'm an investor today, make money tomorrow. And that's, you know, going to your points. That's why some people don't do it because they're just trying to get next, uh, the next half, you know, results out. So they aren't prepared to make mistakes. So you end up with everyone just trying to do a middle road as I put, they just try and put lipstick on the bulldog and do 5% better or 10% better. And that's enough. It's not in the old days or family business where you take a bit of risk to get real return and make real change and be ahead of everyone. You, you actually get paid in this world to be middle of the pack. And I think that breeds mediocrity. And this is why I think you've had this explosion of an, entrepreneurialism um, through the world because there's this big gap between big corporate leadership and uh, risk-taking that has just become so wide and there's just a I think a huge uh, gulf that uh, entrepreneurs are driving down and that's why they're being more successful than probably ever in history. I imagine you have quite a few executive tech resources in your team now inhabiting strategic roles uh, than say five years ago. Are you a tech fan or or do you have to sort of harness the enthusiasm and expertise of people, you know, in your team? How, how enthusiastic do you have to be as a leader in, in all the new stuff? I think you absolutely have to be enthusiastic in whatever you believe in. So even if you don't believe in tech, you believe in something else, be enthusiastic in it. Otherwise it's not going to get done. Cause, um, you know, having been in, in business now for, you know, uh, 30 years, the one thing I have learned, I don't know if uh, uh, when you were at school, we had a set book called Lord of the Flies. Oh, I read that. And Scary book. Scary book. But you know, it's interesting. I've only understood it now in the last 10 years, what it's all about. And that's the fundamental issue. If you don't have a leader who's passionate about an outcome, then business 
degrades into silos and, and you can see it in various countries and, you know, you can speculate around, you know, different leaders, you know, countries that are in turmoil because leadership is weak and not passionate about an outcome. And that's what goes for, you know, companies and corporations. Tone from the top is drives everything. And so you've got to have a view. You've got to believe in it. And you've got to be open to, for people to challenge you so you can add to that and don't see it as negative when, when people challenge you. And, uh, that's really, I think, the essence of it. And which part of your job as CEO do you love the most and which can't you stand? Uh, um, I love the, the, the strategy, the, uh, the forward looking, the, the new challenges, uh, people, um, those are really, you know, um, fun. The bits I hate is all the bureaucracy around control and, uh, uh, regulation and everything. And it's, it's necessary, but, um, it's really takes a lot of time. You know, sometimes I think we go too far on it and spend less time actually adding to the economy and adding to clients. And uh, so getting that balance right has been a very tough, uh, process. In fairness to legacy players within banking, that's the one thing that startups don't necessarily have to contend with to the degree a large corporate has to, which is regulation, uh, keeping so many people happy, not just stakeholders internally, shareholders, etc., cetera, um, but government, uh, international relations, all sorts of things that a Barclays needs to think about that, say, Andelier's fintech stars or whatever don't need to and how much of that have you found to be a limiter to some of the great ideas that you've latched onto, wanted to act on but couldn't just because you're Barclays and you have to play by some rules no it's absolutely and so I think the trick is to have a look at the important ones and uh, uh, so you know you can't do everything um, you've got to pick the, the key ones and go with those. But, you know, I also say to people, there's pros and cons of being in the startup and being in the big organization. I've seen many people leave a big organization because they think they can do it all themselves and they totally underestimate the power of a brand and the power of scale. And that's, that's the beauty of being in an organization that's across 12 countries and employs 150,000 people and has, you know, 14 million clients is when you do make a difference. You really make a difference and um, you've just got to temper the breadth of that difference. So pick a few things and actually do it. And uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a different experience. You have to be a bit more patient. You have to live with ambiguity a bit more. You've got to convince more people. But in some ways that uh, I think is a good uh, discipline because if you can't convince someone in the elevator ride, in the elevator pitch, then your idea is not as good as you you think it is. And so there's always a good tempering in these things. Um, I think in big organizations, you've just got to make sure you're working with people that you can teach you stuff and you respect. You don't get into a big organization where there's massive bureaucracy and people are just going through the motions of doing things to tick boxes. So there's some good ones, there's some bad ones, and I suppose it's the same with startups. There's some good ones and there's some bad ones. Indeed they are. Now, I'm sure there are many perks that come with being in your position, uh, uh, access to the best hotels, perhaps a, a driver, I imagine, maybe. What's a perk you enjoy that might surprise me or that people might find unexpected? Do you think the perk for me is more the access I get to so many people? You know, my biggest perk that I would hate to tell my boss is having the privilege 
of being involved in the World Economic Forum, being able to go to a place like Davos and sit next to a Bill Gates, a George Soros, a, you know, a central bank governor of Tokyo, of uh, Japan. And in that forum, you're all equal. And so that's been absolutely amazing for me on terms of a learning experience and uh, having a discussion. I mean, at the last Davos, I sat around a breakfast table. There was 10 of us with, you know, the CEOs of four of the largest banks in the world and had a discussion with them. Could ask some questions and debate stuff and understand how they're thinking. That's for me is the biggest perk. And um, even if I wasn't allowed to go, I'd probably use my own money to pay to go because it's it's that worthwhile. But you don't need to pay. So. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <laughs> and what would you say is the, what, one of the most common misconceptions regular folk uh, have about men and women in your position? I think the biggest misconception is that, um, you know, we, we can do anything whenever we want to. And, um, but you can't, you know, at, at, when you're sitting in this seat, there's a lot of focus on you and you have to walk the talk, you know. You can't espouse a set of values and then do something different. So you actually have to be almost whiter than white. Um, if I can use that expression. So one of the thing, one of the downsides is I work with some really nice people, but I don't allow any of them to become my friends. So I don't see them on the weekend. I don't come for a bra at my house because it's a work relationship. And even though they're great people, I just don't make friends with them. You know, I don't overstep that boundary. And that's quite difficult because as soon as you do, you're not seen to be impartial. Um, and so that's the most difficult part of this. You know, people see it as very glamorous and that, but it's actually quite a lonely position because you have to divorce yourself from, you know, emotion and business. Um, and where did you learn to do that? Was that something you watched through observation or got burnt, getting it wrong? No, it's just, I mean, one thing I didn't before they appointed me into a CEO role, I hadn't realized how much focus that seat gets. It's it's quite different to being a head of a department to being the CEO. It's just fundamentally different and no one prepares you for that. And it was only once you realize what that seat looks like and what people are expecting from you and how they view you, then you can, you know, st start dealing with it. But I mean, I was brought up to be on the conservative side of, you know, values and, you know, don't push those boundaries because that becomes the essence of everything. So uh, I think I've just become more clear about it as I've understood it more and more. So for example, I mean, I haven't bought or sold a share on the JSC for close on 20 years just because I don't want the perception of, you know, that I may have known something. It's just not worth it in my position to even allow that perception, even the faintest perception. You know, so uh, I, I don't do any investing myself. So, yeah, I guess you're not losing any sleep over the Panama Papers. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm definitely not one of those people with an account offshore. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, let's talk uh, about the Barclays business here in Africa. What does Barclays make money doing here in Africa? What is the model? I ask this in the context of stuff we've, we've obviously, you know, that's come out in the media about Barclays plans to divest and we speculate around the, the strategic reasons the global firm might decide to do this and that kind of thing. And, but I'm, I'm curious to understand the business from what, where it stands right now. Like, what is the business? How does it make money? What is the model? Okay. So just a key point to understand is that Barclays PLC is just a shareholder. Barclays Africa is an entity listed on the JSC. 
it's got operations in 12 countries or 13 countries if you take the uh, rep offices. And that's not changing. We're still going to operate our normal banking operations in all 13 countries. Uh, we're just losing a cornerstone shareholder, if you want to call it. Um, so the business plan stays very similar to what it always been. There's not going to be much change there. Obviously, in my business, the wholesale business, being linked to Barclays has helped me build it very quickly. So in you know the last 10 years, we've gone from a 1.8 billion rand business to a 15 billion rand business. We could never have done that greenfields on our own. But we've grown up and we're about to, you know, um, go and find our own flat and get our own job and everything. So, you know, we've, we've moved on. Um, so the business is the same. We operate in the retail space and the wholesale space. So our, our core skills are around what I call flow banking, basically transactional banking. So a bank account, a home loan, a vehicle loan, a personal loan, a credit card. And it's just the same for corporates, you know, a bank account doing salaries, doing wages, doing um, payments to creditors, doing foreign exchange, helping people with interest rates, lending money, doing trade finance. That is 95% of our business is that flow stuff. We've then got an investment bank which sits over the top that does the real structured stuff, The uh, what I call the lumpy deals. You know, you, you do a few of them a year, but they're very complicated, highly structured, and they're sorting out a complicated problem. Like dams and power stations. <laughs> yeah, those two. But, um, you know, something like an acquisition like Steinhoff has gone and done and, you know, bought a, a company in in Germany, relisted themselves there. That's quite a complicated transaction. doesn't happen every day. And so we try and add that over the top for these you know, events as we call them for, for corporates. But largely we are a day-to-day flow business, as I call it, just traditional banking. And that's where 90% of our profits come from. And deals like the Steinhoff deal, would the, are those PR deals as far as the reputation of the bank is concerned? Because, I mean, I don't imagine you'd need them to keep the doors open. No, absolutely not. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to be the full-service banker to a client. And, um, you know, if we stop doing that deals – it wouldn't make much difference to the bank from a profit and you know revenue perspective. But what you do do, you lose the edge around the relationship you've got with the client because each time they want to do a event or a game-changing deal for them, they go to someone else and then they form a relationship somewhere else, and that's when you start losing you know your relationship. So you need to do that full service so that when they do, you know, when they they trust you day to day. When you want to do, you know, it's like when you, how often do you buy a house, you know? So you want to have the relationship with that, that client that they feel that you're the trusted provider. And when they go and buy the house and it's a big event for them, they come to you rather than go to another bank and then maybe you lose that relationship. And so in the context of the model you've described and uh, what fintech innovations are you most excited about in that context? Well, we're doing a lot of work around taking the cost out of banking. And so trying to make things like onboarding a lot more easier. Uh, you want digital onboarding. So, you know, you can just go and do it and do it in five minutes and you don't have to, you know, go into a branch, take all these documents and, you know, get them ticked and photocopied and sent off and everything. So those innovations are very interesting. Um, just around mobile banking, you know, making it easier so people don't have to go into branches. And then um, taking cost out of the system uh, where there's friction at the moment, uh, you know, around 
things like FX where there's a huge bid offer for retail FX. It doesn't need to be. And so how do we take that out? So there's a lot of innovation around making the back end more scalable and making banking more self-service. So you can decide what you want rather than I'm telling you this is all you can have. And so that's what we're trying to do, trying to tailor banking to client needs rather than, oh, he has the, only the five things we can do, take it or leave it, which is the old style banking. Key question around that is there have to be, in your mind, disruptions or potential disruptions to the way you do business entirely, the kind of disruptions that could make it such, such that in 10 years' time, we don't have a bar case. Would you share on what those might be? I think the biggest disruption is going to come around the way banks charge for services. We still charge, in my view, for historic value add. But with technology uh, today, a lot of that doesn't cost any money. So, if, for example, if you send money from within a bank from one account to another account, so it could be your wife's account or your son's account or something, it costs us nothing. And yet you still pay for that historically because that's the way it was a ledger entry that someone had to go and do. So there was a cost to it. FX today, you, you know, in the old days, you have to, you used to have to go to your branch and collect, you know, the notes to go to the new country. Today, you don't you just drag it across into a multi-currency wallet. And when you get there, you spend it. That doesn't cost us anything yet. We still charge for it. That's where the disruption's happening. It's what I call is where the friction is. So I think payments are going to be free or very close to free. Whereas today, they get charged for. If you think about, how Western Union and, you know, people make money. There's huge amounts of money being made for, for cross-border payments. There's very little cost in that today. And yet a lot has been charged. I mean, if you go to the informal market, as much as 20%. And it shouldn't, it should be easy. And uh, so uh, that's where the disruption is going to take place. And so a lot of the traditional places banks make money are going to go away. Already in some countries, ATM fees are zero because they're trying to drive cash out of the system. And so if you're a bank that makes lots of money out of ATMs, you know, you better start changing that model. And so I think that's where the disruption is going to take place. And banks need to change their models to a far more value-add service provision and pay for it. So you can actually pick, okay, here's the five things I want, and I'm prepared to pay for those five things, those four things I don't want. We've tried to bundle services and say, just pay a one fee, and even if you don't want half of it, have it anyway. In the new world, that's not going to happen. Uh, it's really going to be pay as you use, and that's what banks have to get used to. Is that why Barclays is currently one of the more high-profile players backing uh, blockchain technology? Absolutely. I mean, blockchain, you know, whenever people speak about it, there are all these shortcomings of it, but it reminds me of, I don't know if you ever saw the, f- the picture of the first digital camera that was wheeled into the Kodak boardroom. It was huge. It was unwieldy. It only did 100,000 you know, megapixels, whereas today, well, then they were already at 20 million and walked in with this huge, you know, cumbersome thing and said, this is going to close your business down. And they all laughed at him. And that's really where blockchain is today. It's that first bit of the, the Kodak camera. And, um, that's going to make a big difference. And it's just a matter of time before they actually, you know, get it right. And we need to be ready for it. But I think it just takes a lot of cost and a lot of fraud out of the system. And that's very positive for banking generally. So I don't think it's the same as the Kodak moment as long as you are ready to adopt it. Right. So downhill from here, quick fire questions. Uh, well done, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's the hard stuff out of the way. Um, right. What's the hardest or the most challenging uh, African country you you have to administer your services in? 
Our most difficult one at the moment uh, has been Tanzania, mainly because we've got two bank licenses there, and there's some complications. One was an ABSA uh, uh, acquisition before we merged, and one's you know Barclays Bank Tanzania, and running two licenses in a in a country is very difficult. And so, just getting that uh, sorted out is is probably one of our biggest headaches at the moment, just because of the complications of it. Competitive issues. Yeah, exactly right. Right. So, uh, what's the first album you you owned? Tape, vinyl, CD. It was a vinyl, and it was a Neil Diamond, Beautiful Noise. Okay. And what are you listening to right now? What are you loving right now in terms of music? Uh, various things. I still like most of my old music. So, you know, um, listening to things like Bob Dylan, listening to things like um, Meatloaf, listening to things like Evoid even. Uh, so I still listen to a lot of old music, not a lot of new music. You know, uh, things like Neil Young, uh, Barkley James Harvest, they're all on my on my phone, on my iPod, and that's what I listen to when I'm in the plane. Oh, so you haven't regressed to the vinyl as as most of the world is doing now. Well, at least some of the posh world is doing. No, I haven't even regressed to CDs, unfortunately. That's cool. <laughs> that's cool. And uh, do you think it's true that you can judge a man or woman by his or her playlist? I think you can judge them by their ringtone. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to call you in a minute just to check. <laughs> okay, do that. Okay. Favorite movie? Oh, uh, sure. Favorite movie. Um, one of my favorite movies was uh, Face Off, Nicolas Cage, Robert De Niro. Wasn't it Nicolas Cage, uh, John Travolta? Yeah, sorry. Nicolas Cage, John Travolta. Yeah, yeah. That was quite a classic of the 90s, eh? Yeah, it was, uh, it was just, it was off the wall. You know, it was just out of its, its time. I really enjoyed it. The other one was, uh, um, uh, Pulp Fiction was also another John Travolta movie, which I thought was also just, you know, ahead of its time and really sort of uh, out there. So I watched that a few times. A little violent there. Yeah, but, um, uh, my, my favorite movies have been, uh, things like Lord of the Rings and, uh, Harry Potter. I've got all the series. I watch them many times. I just really enjoy it. Okay. Well, uh, do you put, do you listen to podcasts at all? Not really, no. From time to time. Moving swiftly along before I, I get violent myself. <laughs> okay. Favorite airline? You you must travel a lot. Um, I use British Airways because of I, I go to London often and uh, just a policy if it's the home airline, then use it because when you arrive there, the facilities are good. But I think the best airline must be between like an Emirates and a Cathay. When you fly them, they, they're just fantastic. Cathay I can vouch for. Uh, Emirates, strangely, haven't done, not done Qatar, but yeah, definitely Cathay. Yes, very good. And so, final question, a question you wish I would have asked but didn't. Well, that's, uh, I think you asked most questions, but um, nothing really, to be quite frank. Uh, I think it was fairly comprehensive. Accountant's back in the room. <laughs> no? No, that's, that's cool. It doesn't have to be a question, but um, yeah, a shout out. <laughs> Uh, just to my wife and kids to say they've made my life fundamentally different over the last 10 years and I wouldn't have been successful without them. So thanks for all the pain and suffering to allow me to get to where I've got. And thank you for letting us draw metaphors for <laughs> the conversation we had today. It's a pleasure and thanks for the chat. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversations.